Welcome to the Todd DeVoe Show, exploring the best ideas and lessons for leaders. Good morning, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you are at in this fine world. And really weird years right now. So we, I'm here in Southern California, and we're going from having 100 degree plus days uh, to still going to be hot today. Uh, yeah, we, now we have thunderstorms and, um, and a little bit of rain coming in. Uh, so I think it's a good thing. Maybe it'll cool down. I'm not sure. But we have firefighters out in Hemet fighting this large fire uh, in this crazy heat and weather. So uh, ladies and gentlemen that are out there that are fighting the fire, um, please, you know, stay safe. I always say at the end of my show, stay hydrated. Uh, but truly, make sure you guys are taking care of yourselves on, the, on that line. And uh, thank you for doing what you are doing. But we're not here to talk about fire or the weather. Uh, we're here to talk about the term accident. And so much so that, you know, you always hear this thing, oh, sorry, it was an accident. And it's sort of supposed to forgive you for what you've done. Um, but in police and fire and EMS, uh, we've moved away from the concept of a traffic accident to a traffic collision. Um, because, it, well, is it an accident? I don't think we'll say it's on purpose, but could you do things to prevent uh, what was happening? So when I saw the book um, that came out here by uh, by Jesse Singer, talking about uh, it's just an accident I had to have her on the show. So Jesse, welcome to the show. So how, how did you get into the idea of, you know, sorry, it's only an accident. Like what drove you to write this book? It's, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a long story for me um, and not the happiest one. Um, I, was, uh, I was young, I was a young journalist. Um, a 23-year-old in 2006, um, when my best friend was killed. Um, he was 22. He was a New York City high school math teacher, and he was riding his bike on a separated biking and walking path that runs adjacent to a highway in Manhattan. And he was killed by a driver who mistakenly turned onto this biking and walking path and then drove downtown on it. Um, and now this driver, he was drunk and he was speeding and he went to prison. And um, for a long time, that wasn't an accident story for me. It was just, that was the story that was told, you know, it was a drunk driver, it was an accident and um, there wasn't much else to it. Um, but what inspired me to write this book happened 11 years later um, when a different man rented a truck and follow the exact same route as my best friend's killer. Except this time the man intentionally turned onto the biking and walking path. Um, he killed eight and injured 11 in an act of vehicular terrorism. But he followed the exact same route. And when I looked into it, I learned that other people had been killed before and after my best friend on the same path, the same way. Now, every time the driver was different. You know, obviously one was drunk, one was a terrorist, but others were lost, distracted. And every time prior to this terror attack, it was an accident, was the story that was told. It was a mistake. It couldn't have been prevented. It couldn't have been predicted. It was random. And so no problems were solved in the built environment of this place, this highway with a bike path adjacent to it, with all of these open entrances where drivers could easily make this turn. And after the terror attack, and I, I really think this was the impetus for the anger that drove me to write this book, because writing a book is really hard and you do need to be angry to do it, um, was after the terror attack, the city and the state got together and they barricaded every single entrance to this bike path. So it was no longer possible to drive a car down the bike path. 
simple changes, cement barricades, bollards, people could still walk by, bikes could still fit by, but they made the harm impossible, which was a way to say they, they stopped making it about whether it was an accident or intentional or unintentional or an error. Instead, they just solved the problem that people were getting hurt. And for me, it was a really horrible lesson that accident was this magic word of willful ignorance that allowed us to ignore preventable harm. Um, and it was from that realization that I started to look into what we really meant when we said it was an accident and the long history of the word being used to allow us all to let um, tragedy remain in place and ignore it. Let's talk about that for, for a minute because we do use that word a lot and we use it as a way to, I don't want to say get out of something, but at least um, deflect some of the responsibility, you know, and, and I think of my, my kids, you know, and, you know, pouring milk and they miss the cup and it spills all over the place. Oh, I'm sorry. It was an accident. You know, and you go, Oh, it's okay. It's just spilled milk and you clean it up. You know, that's the a benign example of this, but we, we do this a lot. You know, somebody, knocks over a ladder when somebody's on the roof. Oh, I'm sorry. It wasn't, you know, like what, why do we use that word? And why do we expect to get out of being in trouble by using that word? I think it's really tricky, you know, because we are taught from a young age, right? This is a way you can make someone feel better or you can make yourself feel better when things go wrong. Um, and that's something as we grow older and the things that go wrong get bigger and bigger that we extrapolate out. Um, and, and it's tricky because accident, all right, what we're really talking about here is unintentional injury and unintentional injury related death. But when we say accident, we mean much, much more. And part of that's because the word's tricky. It's got two definitions and they contradict with one another. So in one definition, it's a random event. And in the other, it's a harmful event. So at once it's unpredictable, random, with a predictable outcome, harmful. And what makes it even more complicated is that researchers have looked into what we hear when we hear the word accident, and we actually don't think of either of the definitions. What we think of is unintentional, which is, you know, exactly what a kid who spills milk is thinking. I didn't mean it. I didn't do this on purpose. I'm not a malicious actor. But at that, that little bit of language change is at the core of what we get wrong about accidents, because what we're doing then is we're focusing on the person who made a mistake, the last person involved, the, the human element, the error. And from that perspective, it seems random. And that focus on human error kind of misses the like layered causality and the stacked dangerous conditions um, that lead to people getting hurt um, in these much bigger systems than spilled milk, you know, on our roads, in our workplaces, in our homes. Um, and when we focus on that human error, what one person did or didn't do wrong and whether it was intentional, we miss all these opportunities to prevent harm. And I think that's really at the core of why this is such a large scale and ignored crisis. So when we think about the, even the, the large scale events like <clears throat> PG&E, um, you know, their equipment fails uh, in one way or another because of wind, whatever the cause is, it's happened to them <laughs> for whatever reason a lot. Um, and it burns down an entire community, paradise, for instance, California. You, you know, and and when everybody's starting to look at that, you know, the news even talks about, oh, this was an accidental ignition of fire. In other words, it wasn't caused by a, a an arsonist. Um, <clears throat> but are are we are we giving PG&E a pass when we report it as as an accident, um, or 
or should we be looking at this closely of saying, was it a failure in their maintenance or like, you know, where do we give the pass or where do we say, Hey, the wind came, Santa, Santa Ana winds or Diablo winds came, <clears throat> blew down these wires and there's nothing that the power company could have done. Sorry that your house burnt down. Like how, how do we work that through when we're looking at large scale events like that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's tricky because, you know, when we let them call it an accident, like I said, we're all thinking, oh, oh, they didn't mean it. Like that's the thought process. And when it comes down to it, if we want to prevent this from happening again, that's a really unhelpful thought process. That's just not going to do much for us. Um, so it, it's a reason why in my work and in my personal life, I don't use the word accident. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm also, I'm not too big on word policing. You know, I think much more important than not using the word is that the word makes your antenna go up, that it right. makes you ask questions. Why did this happen? How can we prevent this from happening again? Um, and that kind of like, you know, is a way to like maybe refocus ourselves a little because when it comes down to it, that individual explanation of human error is always going to lead us to a singular cause. And there's never a singular cause, right? Like, because like when you're talking about like an electrical disaster like this, sure, there were trees that shouldn't have been near power lines, but also maybe there was an over-reliance on certain forms of energy you know, in this community so that like there was no fail safe and there was, uh, you know, all the eggs were in one basket. Mm -hmm. And so that's a much larger way of looking at it. And so if we can see any given accident as layered, you know, thing, a series of things going wrong, a series of safety failures, a series of structural failures, then we can get to the point where we can say like, what we're doing here is patching all these individual holes, fixing all these individual systems. Uh, I think there's an urge to find a singular cause always. This is the one thing that went wrong. It was this one tree. It was this one worker who screwed up. Uh, but it's, it's never that. It's never that alone. And when we think that way, uh, we just set the same failure to happen up again because those other dangerous conditions, like putting all your eggs in the same energy basket, right. remain in place. Why do humans need to find that reason? You know, you see things that happen all the time, like, <clears throat> the cause I keep going to wildfire because that's my where we're at, and but <clears throat> even like a home that burns down or or whatever, some accident. I'm going to use the word accident, some accidental discharge of something that creates a uh, a disaster. Why are we obsessed with finding who's at fault or the reason behind it? Yeah, I mean, and this is really tricky, and I want to like talk about at some point how like big systems like corporations and governments take advantage of this, mm -hmm. but. Um, at the core of it is some internal psychology that benefits us a lot. Look, when, when accidents seem random, right, um, whether they're a big disaster or a small one, and random bad things happening is really terrifying to our brains. It is really disturbing that thing, bad things can happen seemingly randomly. And so when we're terrified, when we're afraid, um, we, we want to be back in control. That's like the main feeling back in control that we want to reestablish. And so the way we do that is by creating an other. And usually that's the person who screwed up. And so mm -hmm. if we can identify and we have like, you know, there are a few core psych psychological, um, you know, hangups that we're relying on here. But if we can identify the person we think is at fault, then we can say, oh, I see what they did wrong. I'm not like them. I would never make those mistakes. As soon as we can identify that bad actor, that human error, we can say, oh, well, I know better. I wouldn't do that. I'm not like that person. 
and, and there's huge variations in this. Like if we're talking about like accidental drug overdoses, then like finding that human error is often like finding a person that we've stigmatized and we've mm -hmm. decided is, um, you know, is a bad person. But then, you know, uh, when we drive by a traffic crash on the road, it's more, a little more simple as like, oh, look at them. I, I don't drive like them. But in that act of separation, we provide a lot of comfort to ourselves. You know, we really say like, oh, oh, I'm okay because I'm not like them. I'm safe. Oh, that was scary, but I'm safe because I'm, I'm, I'm different than that. Um, one of the tricks we're doing here is called the fundamental attribution error, which is this like core psychological hangup um, that has been like well-documented a million times over, which is that when we, when something goes wrong um, for us, we blame it on the circumstances that we were in at the time. Like when we look back, you know, I spilled my milk. I'm, I look back and I'm like, oh, you know, the kids were yelling and uh, I had a lot of work. I was distracted. The circumstances, right? But when someone else screws up and we look back on what happened to them, we always blame their character. So this is why it's called the fundamental attribution error, because fundamentally we attribute it erroneously, regardless of proof to the contrary that you know, a person was affected by their circumstances, or we were actually just being, you know, ill-behaved. It's just a fundamental urge. We blame our mistakes on our circumstances and other people's mistakes on their, you know, poor character. Um, and so, so, so imagine that extrapolated out. What was so that? We forgive ourselves quickly, but not others. Is that what we're saying? Actually, we forgive ourselves quickly and we blame others, right? <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, and so, you know, imagine that extrapolated out to an energy disaster or a nuclear meltdown or an oil spill. Um, you know, this this sort of finding of another bad guy um, makes us feel better about it. So I, I, before the, the cell phone laws came into place, my father-in-law was was killed in such a, an event. Um, a woman um, hit him when he was walking in the crosswalk. She was on her cell phone um, and they the the police uh, prosecutor, you know, they prosecuted her and she was found not guilty of vehicular manslaughter. And when they asked the jury, the jury said <clears throat> they could put themselves in her shoes that they've all been on, on the cell phone. So they kind of said, yeah, we could see her, you know, that why this occurred, it was not her fault. Right. Type of thing. And, and I understand that. Right. Because the just way, the way things were, I, I find it interesting that <clears throat> we look to blame, things so they're blaming the cell phone not the person operating the cell phone right to at the cause of, of the death of my father-in-law for instance um do we do corporations like you talked about do they tend to do that as well blame the the thing and not the operator or like how how does because you see this a lot like they you know bp oil spill for instance right a huge incident um you know they the bp oil ceo oil i forget his name now you know, the guy stands up because I just want my life back, right? <clears throat> you know, he, he wasn't blaming BP. He wasn't blaming Horizons. He just said, oh, it's just this thing that occurred. You know, do companies tend to do that a lot as well? It's actually, it's interesting. The BP is, is actually a rare circumstance because actually most of the time what we see, um, I think we're talking about two different things. Like when an, uh, uh, something going wrong is diffused over the public, like in your father-in-law's death, which I'm very sorry to hear about, um, it, everyone puts themselves in the shoes of like the place they don't want to be, right? Like they don't want to be that person um, who could harm someone. 
And so they like might, you know, make it about the car, make it about the cell phone. Um, but there's actually a long history of corporations focusing on individual behavior when mm. things go wrong. And so like, if you look at like the Exxon Valdez, yeah. you know, Exxon blamed that on the, the, the pilot of the ship and not like the labor policies that had him working a you know, 24 hour shift while piloting an oil tanker. Um, and so like, if you look back to the industrial revolution, um, when workers' compensation laws started to get passed and corporations were for the first time on the hook for workers getting injured in dangerous factories and mines and horrible, terrifying workplaces, um, you know, what corporations started to do was invent this idea of the accident prone worker. And they even hired psychologists to try and diagnose this malady of, you know, oh, I'm, I'm, I, there's some people are just accident prone. And I would like to note, no one's ever been able to figure out a definitive test for this. It never worked. But <laughs> corporations talked about it for a really long time. And we see the same thing with automakers when traffic fatalities started to spike in the 1930s as the automobile proliferated. They created these two ideas and then popularized them and repeated them in the news and again and again. The jaywalker, which was a thing that didn't exist, which means to walk like a country bumpkin, right. um, which is to say if you get hit by a car, you don't know how to walk in the city. And the nut behind the wheel, which we don't hear as much anymore, but was like a hugely popular phrase from the, you know, the 30s to the 70s, that the reason people died in traffic crashes was because of the nut behind the wheel, rather than the fact that the automobile in itself was dangerous in a way that the automakers knew about. And so there's like a long history of corporations actually pushing off systemic risk onto individual behavior um, as a way to defend their product, you know, their situation, you know, their, their work. Um, and I think there's a lot to actually be learned about that um, I, in, in an interesting way, because as much as it's the process of saying like um, the problem with this crash was the cell phone, um, you know, the car crashed, um, the phone was distracting. Um, I do think it's important to recognize that it is what we're talking about. There are human errors, right? Like all the jury members who said, oh, I, I understand what it's like to be on your phone. Um, part of them is correct. They do understand that. We all understand that our phones are distracting and that these individual behaviors are actually really quite hard to change. You know, like Everyone knows they shouldn't be distracted while driving, but everyone is distracted by their phones at all times because our phones are literally created to be distracting. Um, and I actually think at the core of this is like this focus on what any individual human was doing is like a misleading distraction from our ability to solve the problem. For, for more than 10 years, technology has existed. Both the cell phone companies and the car companies have it that can make it so your phone doesn't work at all in your car. So why are we focusing on an individual's behavior to resist being addicted to something that it was created to be addicted mm. than simply demanding that automakers and car companies put this basic safety technology in. And, and I think that kind of gets at a bigger point, which is like, so um, people die by accident in the US more significantly more than any other wealthy nation. We have a higher rate of accidental death than any other wealthy nation. Um, so I would say, like, do you think that people in Europe are, you know, this is a problem of human error. Um, are people in Europe, like, less accident prone? Are they, like, less distracted? Uh, no, they have different systems in place, different layers of safety protecting them that reduce these, these rates. Um, and a lot of what happens in the U.S. is it's a bit more of a free-for-all. Do, 
kind of on that question with between Europe and the United States, is it because Europe uses mass transit better? I mean, I, I, I and I don't know because I'm asking this question and I have no clue. This is just in my pop of my head. I mean, like, are there less traffic fatalities in New York City than there is, like, say, in Los Angeles? Um, I, I don't know New York and LA offhand. I'm sure there are less in New York. Um, but like, for example, New York State and Texas is an easy one. There, you're way more likely to die in a traffic crash in, in Texas than New York State. And you're way more likely to die in a traffic crash in the U.S. than in Europe. Um, but remember how before we were talking about layers of safety, that mm -hmm. it, it's not just one thing. And so I should note the accidental death rate. It's not just traffic accidents that you're less likely to die of in the U.S. than Europe. All accidents, oh, wow. fires, drug over yeah. the, the whole the whole number. Um, but you know, so it's layers of safety. So one of the many things that make you less likely to die in a traffic accident in Europe than the U.S. is mass transit. Another is that roads are designed to govern speed. You know, we're here, we're always widening our highways. There, they're narrowing yeah. them because people drive slower when the roads narrow because they feel unsafe. Uh, there's more automated enforcement. Um, cars are less heavy because they have better fuel economy standards. Um, and so they, and they therefore accelerate less quickly. Um, so there, there are many things like that. Here's another one, um, which is in your world of, you know, emergency management, there's universal medical care most everywhere, which means, you know, you're more likely to get medical care quickly. Like something we're seeing right now is accidental death rates in rural areas, um, you know, in the South where we're seeing lots of hospital closures, you know, because, you know, sometimes the difference between an accident being a no big deal and being a really big deal is the transit time to the hospital. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. that matters. Um, so it's all these different layers that affect the outcome, um, which is why I say we should always be focusing on controlling the harm rather than controlling the cause. Um, you know, that people are going to make mistakes, things are going to go wrong, but we can constantly reduce the amount of harm that people are exposed to. And that's the difference between like, giving someone a ticket for speeding and governing their vehicle. So their speed, their speed can't accelerate over a dangerous point. Why, why don't we govern? And I mean, I, I mean, I, I live here in Los Angeles area, right? Orange County area, you know, and we're governed because there's so many flipping cars in the driveway on the road. We can't go more than 40 miles an hour for the most time. But, but when there's not, you know, I mean, you can go, uh, I was talking, you know, going to Vegas, for instance, uh, you get on the freeway uh, and you get into, there's a true thing. It's called freeway hypnosis. Uh, you get into a zone and you don't realize how fast you're going. And I looked down at my speedometer one time. I was going 115 miles an hour, one, 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 five, not one, five, zero. And um, <clears throat> I was like, holy crap. I mean, I scared myself because I was going that fast um, and, and pulled back. Um, why, why don't we have governing governors on our cars? You know, it's funny, speed governors have existed since the 1920s. Um, and actually, you know, there was a point in the 1920s or 30s where the city of Cleveland, you know, was totally fed up with traffic fatalities. And they were like, we want to pass a law that says you have to, every, every vehicle in this city will be speed governed. Um, and it was like actually the beginning of the automobile lobby getting together to fight something. And like the automobile lobby organized for the first time. And even though like tens of thousands of people had voted to put this initiative on the ballot, it lost massively because the auto lobby put all this huge amounts of money and effort into fighting it. Um, so in general, that's almost always the answer, which is that we like live in um, 
you know, for the past 30 years, we've lived in a country governed by deregulation, by less rules, more freedom, you know, um, and that's interestingly enough, when deregulation starts to be popularized in the US, that's when the accidental death rate starts to rise. Um, you know, accidental deaths fell for decades in this country. And then in 1992, it turned around and it started to rise hmm. just a few decades, you know, just a few years after we defunded all our, you know, Ronald Reagan defunded all our regulatory agencies, cut all their staff um, and started to cut the social safety net, you know, because that's another factor here, right? Like wealth inequality makes accidental deaths go up because if you don't have as much money in your pocket, you're not going to buy the newer, safer car. And you might take the more dangerous job that pays better. And you might live in an apartment, you know, is a fire trap because you have less money in your pocket. And so those two factors really shifted the accidental death rate and it's been rising ever since. I know we're getting close to the end. I want to ask this one last question regarding that. <clears throat> and so is your data proven out that, um, so the, the, I guess also the jobs you're taking, but the the lower you are on the social economic scale, the ch higher the chances are that you're going to die of accidental death. Yes, uh, poverty is a direct corollary for accidental death um, on almost every level. It's on the individual level. Um, if you look like county by county and state by state, um, it's true. This is so true that in West Virginia, a very poor state, you are more than twice as likely to die by accident than if you live in Virginia, just a few miles away across the mm -hmm. state line, which is, of course, a wealthy state. Um, and, you know, this affects it. You remember we were talking about layers of safety. So like on the personal level, you can't afford to buy a new car. You're going to live in an apartment that's not as safe. Um, but also maybe you're going to drive further to work and your state is spending less money repairing the roads and making sure that landlords are in compliance with fire codes. And you're less likely to have access to health care. So if you know, you get hurt on the job, you might not have health care, you might use drugs to make yourself, you know, be able to handle that pain. And so all of these layers compound to higher risk exposure for certain people in this country. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time in West Virginia for a bit. And uh, um, the roads over there are definitely crazy um, being between cities. But there's a lot, you know, a lot of farmers and a lot of coal miners too, right? You know, so I'm sure that has to play with it. But what I found interesting about that, there's a lot, well, back, this is back in the 90s, um, there was a lot of drug use up in the hills and a lot of illegal alcohol being consumed. So I'm sure that all plays part of to that as well, which again, brings you on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. That's, I never thought about that. I never put two or two together until, you know, uh, I was, you know, reading stuff about what you're writing. And uh, I find that very interesting. Well... You know, this is coming to the end here. Uh, I hate this part of the day because uh, I, I'm really interested in this conversation, so we should do it again. But how, how can people find your book? Um, the book uh, is available everywhere books are sold um, on Amazon, bookshop.org, um, and at your local bookstore um, or library, very likely. Uh, it's everywhere. Absolutely. And, and uh, I highly recommend uh, getting the book as well. And uh, I, I look forward to hearing more from you and maybe we should do this again sometime, maybe a bit of a lot of longer format. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hate to say, you know, that a big horrible accident will happen and we'll have grounds to talk, but it isn't random. It's rather predictable. So um, perhaps we can talk then. Jess, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me on. Hey, everybody, thank you for spending time with us this morning. It's, it's always great to, uh, to have you here. And this conversation is really important um, for what we do um, in, in, in our field uh, because at the end of the day, it's about saving lives and what can we do better, um, whether it's through regulation or through education 
or maybe for both through both. So, well, everybody, until next time, I hope you all stay safe and everybody stay hydrated. And again, to all those that are out there fighting fires uh, here in, in California, uh, stay safe, everybody, because we do appreciate everything that you're doing. And uh, man, it's uh, it is not a fun time to be out on the fire line, that's for sure. So, till next time, follow us on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, and your favorite podcast player. <laughs>